Thank you, worship team. That was beautiful. Kids, you are dismissed for Children's Church at this time. And those of us who remain, let's take our Bibles and we will turn to Hebrews chapter 13. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning. Now we're coming to the last chapter in the book of Hebrews. I know some of you are probably saying, man, I didn't think pastor would ever get through Hebrews. Well, here we are. We're in the last chapter. And as we come to the 13th chapter, the end note of the 12th chapter was this. We have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now that verse reminds us that we're to worship God. That's the response that we're to have to all of the teaching, all of the important points that have been made throughout the book of Hebrews. As we've looked through the first 12 chapters, we've seen the Word of God share with us what Christ has done for us, who Christ is, what we have to look forward to because of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The response that we should have to all of that truth, worship. And as we saw last time, worship is so much more than just what we've done this morning, singing praises to God. In fact, the word that's translated worship in that closing part of the 12th chapter is a word that carries with it the idea of service. So worship carries with it the idea that we are to serve God, to live in a practical manner that reflects we understand who God is and we want to lift up His name, not only by our words, but by our actions. So as we come to the 13th chapter, that's what we find. We find some commands that give us actionable things that we can do to lift up the name of God, to worship Him, not only with our words, but much more importantly, with our lives. And that's where we pick it up in this passage. It's so important that we understand that our lives are to reflect God, that we have tremendous value to God, and our salvation should have tremendous value to us. And rather than hiding it behind sinful behavior, we need to live in obedience so that our salvation shines forth to the glory of God first, but also as a testimony to others. You know, while I was on my vacation, my, old, my youngest son, Rhett, and I went to Louisiana, and we were there on a fishing trip, but uh, we, we hung around a few days after the fishing trip to do some exploring. And one of the places that we explored was the Hamas House. It's a place that was a sugar plantation down in Louisiana and uh, a beautiful stately home uh, passed from generation to generation, from owner to owner. And the valuable antiques that were inside this home amazed us each one priceless, each one irreplaceable. And as we were going through the various rooms, we came to a game room, and there in the corner of a game room was a statue that had been in honor of Abraham Lincoln. Now, when I looked at this, I thought, now what's a good southern home doing with a statue of Abraham Lincoln? And then the tour guide started to inform us. This statue of Abraham Lincoln wasn't original to the house. It was bought on eBay. And the owner found it, thinking that it was a bronze statue, and so he purchased it for $1,000. 
And when he got it home, he decided, hey, I'll take the uh, bronze cleaner and I'll see if I can't shine it up a little bit and make it look more presentable because it was just black and yucky looking. So he gets the bronze cleaner to it and nothing. Didn't phase it. So he said, well, how do I get this off? And he said, I've got silver cleaner, so I'll try silver cleaner. Take silver cleaner to it, boom, it comes clean. So he starts investigating. 65 pounds of .99 pure silver for $1,000. I'd take some of that action, wouldn't you? And what he discovered as he investigated more was this. This statue was done by the person who did Mount Rushmore, Gustav Borglum. So here he has this piece in silver value alone, about $32,000. But in addition to the value of the silver was the value of the sculptor. And he got it for $1,000. I'll bet the guy who sold it for $1,000 just about had a heart attack when he found out. Can you imagine? That valuable piece left out in the elements, turned dark, but it had such great value, he didn't realize it or he would have never let it go for $1,000. And you know, I thought about that for a moment. That's kind of the way some of us treat our salvation. Tremendous value. Sometimes we allow the dirt and the filth of this world to obscure the value of our salvation. We forget about its tremendous worth and like dross on silver, some of our lifestyles cover up the beauty of the salvation that God's given us. We should be people who live our faith. It should be something that's shined up and radiates the glory of Jesus Christ. And that's what God wants each and every one of us to do, to live in that way. And here in the 13th chapter, we see some keys to living that way. So let's look at some of these keys. Let's look at the polish, the, the silver cleaner that we can have for our lives. First, as we come to this first verse in the 13th chapter, we find that love stands out. If we want to truly reflect Jesus Christ, we're to be loving people. As a matter of fact, a very simple statement starts this part of the passage where it says, keep on loving each other as brothers. You know, the NIV does a really good job of translating the first part of this verse when it says, keep on loving each other. The way this is phrased in the original language in which the Scripture was written, it shares with us that love is not something where we just look at somebody and do an act of love or kindness, and then that's it. We've fulfilled our obligation. We've checked love off of our list, and now we don't have to worry about it anymore. Love is actually something that we are to consistently do. We are to express love toward others on an ongoing basis, and in fact, it's something that we should be continually growing in. Now, in the original language, there are several words that are translated love. One means unconditional love. Another one means just a fondness that we have, kind of like the love that a brother and sister would have or a brother and brother would have. It's the idea of that fondness, and that's the word that's used here that we should genuinely love one another in that sense, feeling that fondness for one another. 
And the Word of God shares with us the priority that love should have in our lives on a consistent basis. The Lord Jesus Christ said this, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then look at the 35th verse, the defining mark of the child of God. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. As followers of Jesus Christ, disciples, how are we doing at that? When people look at our interaction with others, do we radiate the love of Christ or is there the dross of bitterness that clouds that love? Is there a selfishness that keeps us from expressing that love to others? Jesus Christ wants us to be loving people and have it readily observable by the way that we live, the decisions that we make, the things that we do. All of those should reflect the love of God. In other passages, the Scripture tells us this, now about brotherly love, and by the way, that's the same word that's used here. As a matter of fact, we have a city, the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. That's the word that's used here, love of the brothers. And here's the idea. About brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. It should be a natural, normal instinct for the child of God to love others. We should seek to express that love in a practical way, an active way, so that it's easily measured, so that people can look at us and say, now there is a loving person. That's the kind of person who radiates the love of God. Look at 1 Peter 1.22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. I want you to look at the relationship between obedience and love. If I am obedient to what God has commanded, then I will be loving. If my heart is purified toward the things that God has said, I'm going to be a loving person. I'm going to love the brothers deeply from the heart. Not this surfacey thing, but a true depth of love. This is what God wants us to experience. This is how God wants us to demonstrate that love toward one another. So the first way that we make our salvation shine, love. Let people see the love that we have. But then we move on to the next point. As we continue on into the second verse, it says, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Now, let me be quick to say this. Sometimes our whole focus on this verse is entertaining angels. That's secondary. The primary point of the second verse is to show hospitality. And I started thinking, why is God concerned about hospitality? And before I even consider that, what is hospitality? If we looked at this word hospitality and we translated it straight from the Greek, it's a word that means love of strangers. So what it is, it's taking that love that's described there in the first verse that we're to direct toward one another, and it's expanding it and showing that same kind of love to those outside the faith. 
Hospitality means that we are welcoming. It means that we show the love of Christ in a very practical way to all of the people around us. Peter said this, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. And then look at the relationship. After talking about loving one another, he expands it, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. The idea is I am to show the love of God to those around me and not grumble about it. Now, some of us will be hospitable. Somebody will say, hey, can I come over? I guess so. I guess I haven't had you over in a while. All right. And we'll grumble about it. That's such a hassle. Man, who wants to do this? This is work. It means I've got to clean the house. I don't want to do this. Hospitality reaches out to other people. And you can be hospitable no matter where you are. You can be hospitable right here at church when a new person walks through those doors. You can welcome them. Let me commend our church. I've had many people who are new to our fellowship share that they find our church to be friendly and welcoming, and that's what we should be, and that's what we should do. But we should never become satisfied with it. We should kick it up a few notches. We should be welcoming and hospitable to those who come through our doors. We should be hospitable in the workplace. If somebody wants to approach us and talk to us, do they find us welcoming? Do they find us open? We should be hospitable in our neighborhood to where our neighbors don't see us as aloof and distant, but open, ready to share. God values hospitality. Now, why is that? Hospitality is the opposite of selfishness. Have you ever thought about that? The selfish person will look and say, hey, I'm going to do stuff that I want to do. And if this person can't do something for me, forget them. I want nothing to do with them. Love of strangers means that we show kindness to a person who can do absolutely nothing for us. There's nothing in it for us. We look at them and we say, here's a person in need, and I will show kindness and hospitality to this person. And even if I never see them again, I'm doing it to the glory of God. Because it's the right thing to do. It's what God wants us to do. God is a loving God who reaches out. Hospitality teaches us to reach out as well. And notice what the Scripture says in this passage. Do not forget, or it's also translated, do not neglect entertaining strangers. And then this statement, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Now, this passage is referring to historical events that have taken place. Abraham, in the book of Genesis, extended hospitalities to strangers, and one of those strangers happened to be the angel of the Lord. We know from other scriptures that the angel of the Lord is actually Jesus Christ before he came and took on human flesh. So here is Abraham extending hospitality, and he heard a word from God. When we go a little bit further into history, we find Gideon, one of the judges in the book of Judges, who spoke with an angel and showed hospitality and again heard the blessing of God. And then there's the story of Manoah, Samson's mother, who also heard a word from God because she showed hospitality 
to an angel unknown to her. The point that the writer is making isn't be nice to people because you might entertain an angel. The message is hospitality is important, and in the past it has paid off in ways that the person could never imagine. And you know, we can find the same thing. You never know how you can touch the life of a stranger. Just a random act of kindness, being decent, holding the door for somebody as they walk through, stepping outside yourself and thinking about the needs of others. That's the idea of hospitality. And let me tell you, our culture has an awful lot to learn about hospitality. When you travel overseas and you see other cultures where hospitality is valued, you feel like the most selfish person in the world. You need to understand that hospitality is something that God wants us to reflect because it reflects well on Him. And so that's another way that we can rid ourselves of the dross that might cover the silver that is our salvation. Another point. Commit to show love to those who suffer persecution. Look at the third verse. Remember those in prison as if you were fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Now, the context of this passage has more than just talking about the idea of, of those who are in prison in mind. Those who are in prison that are mentioned here from the context of the book of Hebrews refers to those who were in prison for their faith. As a matter of fact, in the 10th chapter, we saw this. Remember those earlier days after you'd received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed, exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. The idea is this. There are people who are imprisoned for their faith. And we should not forget them. We should remember them. And by remember, it means more than just giving a thought to their plight and their condition. It carries with it the idea of prayer. We need to pray for the persecuted church. And this verse really drives that home as an important point. Many of us in the United States are terribly ignorant of what's going on around the world. We find our worship so easy that we can just sort of mail it in and not really think about what we're doing, the tremendous privilege that we have to worship in freedom. And then we forget about those who do not share in that same privilege. Those who face possible death, certain imprisonment because of their faith. As followers of Jesus Christ, the Word of God is saying to us, do not forget them. Understand that there are those who suffer for their faith. And understand this, there could come a time in our lifetime to where we experience the same. So we need to be prepared, remembering those who are imprisoned for their faith, praying for them, lifting them up, 
to God. And you know what? For just a moment, instead of me talking about it, let's unite our hearts. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do think of those who are in northern Africa and China and much of the world, Lord, where they face death, separation from family, imprisonment, loss of jobs, many, many issues of terrible persecution, Lord, because of their faith. And we lift them up to You right now. We pray that You would deliver them from their persecutors. But Father, more than that, we pray that their testimony would touch the hearts of those who persecute them, that they might find Jesus Christ as their personal Savior too. We thank You for their courage, for their steadfastness. Uphold them and keep them strong, we pray in Jesus' name. When you read the testimonies of those who are imprisoned and who face persecution every day, they don't complain. They express tremendous privilege in the opportunity to suffer for Christ, and it's in the spirit of those who are recorded in the Word of God who face the same. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles we're told to no longer preach the name of Christ. And they refused, and so they were beaten. And look at what this says. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. That's the outlook of the persecuted. Paul gives us this challenging statement, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for Him since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Now, I want you to think carefully about the statement that's made. It has been given to you, granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for Him. It's a privilege to suffer for Jesus Christ. And we need to remember those who face the physical and emotional and, yes, even spiritual torment of the persecuted. The Word of God tells us to do this. But then the text goes on. As we come to the fourth verse, we find that there are traps that can derail us from our faith. And in verses 4 through 6, we see some of those traps outlined for us. And these are things that we want to avoid. Notice the fourth verse begins with talking about the importance of chastity as opposed to sexual impurity. So let's look at this. Verse 4, marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. And when we come to this verse, a lot of people look and say, now why is God meddling in the bedroom? Why is he concerned about whether or not a person engages in sex outside of marriage? Listen, God is not against sexual intimacy. He designed it, but he designed it within a context. And that context is marriage. 
Now, when we look at the first part of this fourth verse, look at what it says. Marriage should be honored by all. I think this has a significant application for us. The concept of marriage culturally is under assault. Now, many will go to the gay marriage part of this, but it was under assault well before that. When you see almost half of our marriages end in divorce, the concept of marriage is under assault. So a lot of times as Christians, we like to look and say, yeah, this is talking about gay marriage and that's all. No, it's talking about lifting up the idea of marriage itself and understanding the importance of it. And one facet is the idea that it's a man and a woman, but that's only one facet. It's also something that is committed to for life, a covenant that's established with God. So, for the child of God, we should take a high view of marriage. We should support it. We should honor it. We should do what we can to see that others honor it as well because marriage is important to God. We need to see it as the same. But then it goes on to talk about a personal level, not just the institution of marriage and understanding that, yeah, marriage is important, it should be honored, but how am I doing honoring it? That's the question that it goes on to ask because it says this, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. Now here it's talking about personal purity before God. God wants us to reserve the marriage bed for the spouse that God calls us into marriage with. It couldn't be said more plainly than this text says it. Our responsibility is to keep that in purity, and I believe that this refers to both before the wedding vow and after the wedding vow, and here's why. Notice it says we're to keep the marriage bed pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. And let's talk about what this means. When we look at the first part of it where it says God will judge the adulterer, the Scripture is sharing with us that the person who disregards the marriage vow and is unfaithful to their spouse, they're accountable to God. They must give an answer for what they've done. God never intended infidelity. So to be unfaithful and to engage in sexual intimacy for a person who is not your spouse with a person who is not your spouse, that's outside the will of God. Now, very often we look at just the physical act that pertains to that, but I would submit to you that this is talking about keeping the marriage bed pure by our thought life, by what we expose ourselves to. Am I honoring the marriage covenant that I've entered into with my spouse by what I read, what I watch, what I surf the net to go find? Am I demonstrating marital faithfulness in these things? Keeping the marriage bed pure means that I train my mind to think the thoughts that are right. It also means this. I don't flirt with members of the opposite sex. I protect that marriage by not seeing how close I can come to the edge 
without falling off. But staying back away from the edge and understanding that I have a responsibility to protect that relationship and to hold it in honor. And I won't do anything and I don't want to do anything that would dishonor my spouse because that would dishonor God. As a pastor, I can't tell you how many times I've had to counsel where somebody came in and said, you know, I started out in a relationship with someone as friends, and these are married people, and then one thing led to another, and we fell into an affair. As Christians, we should honor the marriage bed, honor what God has designed to be shared between a husband and a wife and not breach it. But you know, this is not just talking about husbands and wives. Look at the last part of this. God will also judge the sexually immoral. Now, the word immoral here carries with it the idea of activity that is outside the boundaries that God has established. God has established that sexual intimacy is actually good for a husband and wife. But if you are not married to a person, you should not engage in sexual activity. That's the idea. And pornography is a word that we get from this word, sexual immorality. And it carries with it the idea of anything that constitutes that. Let me share this with you, young people. God is not looking at sexual intimacy and saying, this is something that people like to do, so I'm going to snatch it away from them. God is being protective If you engage in premarital sexual intimacy, it teaches you a pattern of thought. Gratification is more important than boundaries and standards. And that can be carried into your marriage relationship later. Listen, if you learn the discipline of remaining pure, and it can be difficult in our culture today, I recognize that, but if you remain committed to the idea that I will remain sexually pure and save myself for my spouse, then you have learned a discipline that will help you in marriage when temptation presents itself. And you will have the endurance and the strength already developed in you to say no. This is why God upholds this as an important part of our lives. This is why God wants us to be committed to this. Not because God is taking one of the things that people like to do and snatching it away, but saying, I will protect you. And you will protect the marriage bed. And it will be what I designed it to be, something that is beautiful, that is shared between a man and a woman who love and are committed to one another. That's God's design. So here, the Christian is told to uphold what God has designed. Something else. We're to go after contentment as opposed to greed. Look with me at the fifth verse. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Now, when we look at this passage, it has a lot to say to us about materialism. The importance of understanding that while material things can bring some happiness to us. It's not the goal. It's not the ultimate. For the child of God, we understand that God entrusts to us what we have. 
and that we're stewards of what God has given. And he can choose to give and he can choose to take it away and it's entirely up to him what he does. But we should never be people who just look at money and love it, have to have it, say that that's the most important thing in our lives. You see, there's a seduction that can take place when it comes to material things and when it comes to money. It can draw our hearts away from God. It can cause us to make that the most important driving force in our lives rather than God. When we look throughout Scripture, greed and idolatry are always very close together. So we need to be people who don't have our lives driven by greed. Paul said this to Timothy, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now look at this perspective. We brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. There are no U-Hauls on the backs of hearses. You can't take it with you. And then verse 8, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The idea that if we have a materialism that drives our lives, it's to our ruin, to our destruction. And then it goes on to say this, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. We can actually have our walk with God eroded by not having the right perspective on material goods and material things. You know, when I traveled to other countries and I saw people who were genuinely poor by anyone's standard, and I looked and I saw what I had, it was convicting. It's easy for us to watch lifestyles of the rich and famous or something like that and start to pity ourselves saying, wow, I don't have a yacht like that guy and I don't have the new 80-inch sharp TV. I'm so deprived. And we can start down the list. We can always find somebody who has something that we don't have or something that's a little better and it's so easy to lose perspective. The standard in Scripture is if you have clothes on your back and food to eat, then you have enough. So as followers of God, we should be content with that. Now let's talk about this word contentment for a moment. Contentment carries with it the idea of being satisfied. Looking at what God has given us and saying, thank you. You see, if I'm constantly in the hunt for the next gadget, more money, bigger house, nicer car, all of those things, if that's what drives me, it's easy to become ungrateful. It's easy to say, why is God doing this for them and not doing this for me? And we can actually build resentment toward God when we get in that system of thought. God wants us to be people who are content with what He's entrusted to us. Thankful for what He's given us. That's the way God seeks all of us to view life with that contentment, 
with that thankful heart. And so the writer of Hebrews is telling us to be content with what we have. And here's the big idea of this passage. Look at the last part of the fifth verse. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. You can lose what you have materially in a moment. Just ask the East Coast. You look at those pictures of devastation and you see homes in the millions of dollars just as flat as a shack. And all of the retirement plans and all of the thoughts of security washed away in a moment. And for those who have their lives built on those things, literally on sand, when the great storm comes, what do they have left? Despair. But think of this. If everything I have is taken away, I have one who will never leave me nor forsake me. Those are the things that can stand the crash in the stock market. The company that promised me retirement and went out of business filed bankruptcy and can't honor it anymore. All of the things that we look at and say, this is my security, they're, they're nothing. But with God, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And here's the perspective builder. Which one are you investing in? Which one captivates your imagination? Which one has your demonstrated priority by your activity? God wants us to be people who understand what really lasts. And really, that's the message of the last few chapters in the book of Hebrews, looking to that country that God has reserved for us and store for us. That's what God wants us to look toward. One final thought. As we come to the last part of this passage, we find that we are to have a confidence in the Lord as opposed to a fear of man. Look at the sixth verse. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The final thing that can cause us to really lose perspective when it comes to walking with God and honoring Him with our lives is the idea of fear. Now, when we fear man, a lot of us look and say, I'm not afraid of man. But be careful before you quickly assert that. It's awfully easy to get intimidated to step back and shrink back because of a fear of man rather than taking a stand for what is right will we'll cower. And we all have done it, myself included. Where afterwards we look and we say, I should have taken a stand there. I should have said something. But we're afraid. And so we shrink back. The perspective that we're to keep is this. The Lord is our helper. The most important person I can please is Jesus Christ. 
not my peer group, not the bosses at work, not my friends, Jesus Christ. So I'm to understand that the Lord is my helper. And because the Lord is my helper, I will not fear what man can do to me. The psalmist said this, In my anguish I cried to the Lord, and he answered by setting me free. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? This is the passage that this is quoted from. The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I will look and triumph on my enemies. That's what God wants us to see. That's what God wants us to understand. He is our helper. He is the one that we're to turn to. He is the one that we're to seek to please. This morning we have seen some insights, and they're going to continue through the rest of the chapter, the 13th chapter, about how we worship God in an acceptable way. We've seen the importance of love and hospitality. We've seen the importance of praying for those who are in prison. We've seen the importance of chastity, of avoiding greed, of avoiding fear. So these are all things that we can look at in our lives and sort of take inventory. Do I reflect a worldview that's consistent with this? Or do I reflect a worldview that's antithetical, the opposite of this? And not by my words, but by my actions and my attitudes. God wants us to come in line with these thoughts, to live them to his glory and his honor. And my prayer, my personal prayer is that I will do this. And I encourage you to do the same. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the call that it is to us to live with consistency the things that were marked out before us. Help us to be loving. and Father, help us to be content with what we have. Help us to be compassionate to strangers. And Father, help us to live in a way that shines forth a salvation that is so precious, so valuable. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.